Hi, everyone. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. We are in the book of Acts on a multi-part series to follow the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the beginnings of the Christian movement. And today we start part two. Part one was about the apostles receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ starting in Jerusalem. And part two, now the apostles and disciples are scattered to be witnesses of Jesus Christ in Judea and Samaria. And today we pick up the story of Acts at chapter 8. And it's where the narrative transitions from Stephen, who we learned about last Sunday, who became the first martyr, the first Christian martyr, and it transitions to Philip, an ordinary Christian bloke, an ordinary member of the church who becomes an evangelist in Samaria. And last Sunday, we had a Leadership 101 lesson from the apostles. We learned how the leaders were leading by making decisions and delegating, and how the church engaged to serve the needs of the congregation so that the ministry of the word and prayer would be prioritized. Last Sunday, I also talked about the leadership dance of balancing compassion and courage in the life of the church. Today in chapter 8, we're going to see the dance between compassion and courage being applied to evangelism and discipleship. So today we're going to have evangelism and discipleship 101 class. We're going to see the need for compassion in evangelism and the courage in discipleship. And we'll see it through the conversion of a sorcerer and a eunuch. And so the story of Acts gets really interesting and colorful with the introduction of these two new characters. So firstly, compassion in evangelism. At the start of Acts chapter 8, the text tells us that on the day of Stephen's death, a great persecution broke through Jerusalem. The religious leaders were going from house to house to find Christian men and women, to drag them out of their homes, to throw them into jail. And we also get introduced to Saul, who leads this persecution. And we'll get to know more about Saul's story next week when Luke Tadassel comes to preach for us next Sunday. But the persecution forced the Christian disciples to scatter and flee into Judea and Samaria. But that was always part of God's plan. Because in Acts chapter 1, Jesus had commissioned the disciples, the apostles, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, but also to be his witnesses into Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And so when the disciples were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, they did not hide. They didn't keep their mouth shut. They weren't refugees as what we would expect, fleeing from persecution. No, they became missionaries. So we now read from verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. We read that they preached the word wherever they went. They shared the good news of Jesus Christ to whoever and whenever. And that's the first thing we learn about evangelism. It's really about sharing Jesus in everyday conversations to whoever and whenever. Because evangelism is really more of a lifestyle than a task or an activity. 
And one of these disciples who preached the gospel to Mary is Philip. We met Philip last Sunday in chapter 7. Philip was one of those men who was chosen to be a a team member to administer the daily distribution of food in order that the widows won't be neglected. And Philip was led specifically to proclaim Jesus in Samaria. And this was significant for several reasons. Who are the Samaritans? Well, let me give you a short history lesson. And this is especially for you, George. George is our residential uh, historian in our church family. So who are the Samaritans? Well, in 931 BC, the kingdom of Israel splits into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And in 722 BC, the Syrians of the north had conquered the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, they were exiled and the Syrians repopulated the kingdom of Israel with their own people. And what happens, ends up happening is that the people of Israel and the Syrians begin to intermingle begin to intermarry, and so they have mixed offspring. But that is not the only thing that happens. They also began to mix religious beliefs, so that the Israelites in the northern kingdom began to take the worship of Yahweh, and they began to add other things, to begin to add other gods, to throw on practices and beliefs of the people around them. And so they had this mixture of worship of many gods. And this created great hostility between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So throughout all of their history during this time, there was great tension and conflict between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Here's a map that shows you the areas covered by the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. You see from Jerusalem, the disciples fled upwards into the northern kingdom. Eventually, the Jews in the southern kingdom saw the Samaritans in the northern kingdom as, hey, you guys are no longer part of us. You're outside of God's people. You've compromised. And so they were marginalized by the Jews in the south. And so there was this great hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so the point being is that the Jews saw the Samaritans as outside of God's people. And so for Philip to go to Samaria, well, that was a big deal. Philip, in his belief of the gospel message, his actions were saying, no, 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 we're not going to write off the Samaritans. They are not outside of God's people. They still matter. And Philip believed that the gospel was also for the Samaritans because Jesus promised and commissioned the apostles to save the Samaritans with the gospel. What happens when Philip takes the gospel to Samaria? Well, many Samaritans believe, including a person who no one would expect to come to the Christian faith, a sorcerer named Simon. And then something else happens. The apostles heard, who are still in Jerusalem, that the Samaritans have come to faith in Jesus. And so the apostle John and the apostle Peter go up to Samaria. So we read from verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. 
because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now this raises an interesting question, doesn't it? Because it seems like the Samaritans believed, they get baptized, but they have not yet received the Holy Spirit. So does that mean that you could profess to believe in Jesus and yet not yet receive the Holy Spirit? The short answer is no. Other parts of the Bible tells us that faith and receiving the Holy Spirit comes together. What we see here is a one-time unique event in redemptive history. The laying of the hands and the Holy Spirit falling on the Samaritans acted like an indicator, acted like a milestone of the progression of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so just like the apostles had to wait to receive the Holy Spirit, in the same way, the Holy Spirit fell on the Samaritans to act as a visible sign, act like a visible milestone that Jesus promises is actually being fulfilled here right now in this moment. And the apostles, as God's authoritative teachers that Jesus personally appointed, the apostles, by laying the hands, is a confirmation. It's saying, yes, the gospel and the Holy Spirit is also for the Samaritans. So the bigger message that this event is conveying is that the gospel is for all people. The gospel is for all people. Because the gospel is for all people of this world. And Philip had the compassion to put away his cultural prejudices, to put away cultural tensions and conflict with the Samaritans, and to compassionately share the gospel to the Samaritans, because the gospel is powerful enough to save all peoples. The Jews, they've ridden off the Samaritans, but God hasn't. There is no group of people that God has ever written off. So the question for us, as we take the gospel into our city, is to ask, who are we writing off? Because as we understood the history of the Samaritans, we come to realize that the Samaritans, well, they're quite like our modern-day Sydney-sider, where more and more Sydney-siders identify themselves as spiritual but not religious, which really means a mixture of different spiritualities, maybe partly religious, with a mixture of pop psychology, mixture of New Age thinking tacked on, well, the good news of the gospel is also for our modern-day Samaritans. And so rather than move away or maybe get frustrated with those who are spiritual but not religious, we are to move closer to them with compassion and hope that the gospel is powerful to save all kinds of people. For a very long time, Sydney's inner west and Sydney's urban center was written off as a wasteland for Christian ministry. Our church building was kind of written off to be destined to be potentially sold off. But we planted Chapel Hill in this building, in Roselle, in Sydney's inner west, with the belief that the gospel is powerful enough to save all people, including inner westies. Because with the conviction that God loves the people in our area, yes, 
it might be harder to proclaim the gospel in the inner west, but if God can save a sorcerer here in Acts 8, then God can indeed save anyone with any kind of mixture of beliefs and practices. So Chapel Hill, let's continue to be a church that takes the gospel to all people in Sydney's inner west and beyond. Let's be that with the conviction that God loves and saves all people. And so you may be right there saying amen to that right now. And I'm guessing that what's going through your mind right now is that you're thinking about all those awkward conversations, all those weird situations that you're thinking that you'll potentially enter into when you think about sharing Jesus with your friends and the people you care about. And maybe it's awkward because you feel like you don't have the right answers. Maybe you feel like you're not super articulate. Or maybe you feel like they might get hostile to you and you fear losing those relationships. Yeah, that happens. But let's, why don't we just, just own that? Why don't we just accept that those awkward, weird situations happen? And maybe if you're joining us today, and you don't profess faith in Christ, maybe you had those conversations with Christians. But we need to just accept that we're going to enter into some tension, some awkwardness, some weirdness. But wouldn't we be willing to take and wear that cost of awkwardness if it meant salvation of your friend, colleague, or someone that's really dear to your heart? Isn't momentarily awkwardness worth internal salvation for another. Now, I'm not promising every time you share the gospel, every person will believe, but isn't it worth being bold and risking awkwardness, knowing that God is powerful enough to save all peoples? That was Philip's heart. That was his conviction. That was his boldness. And so isn't awkwardness just a small price, just a small risk against the enormous joy of seeing someone coming to faith in Christ? Because Jesus is powerful enough to save all peoples. We see this again in the example of the Ethiopian eunuch. Read on with me from verse 26. Now, angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road the desert road that goes down to Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandak, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. And so Philip is led by the Spirit to have this meeting, this encounter with an Ethiopian eunuch on his way back from his trip to the temple in Jerusalem. The fact that he's Ethiopian tells us that he's a Gentile, that he's ethnically outside of the people of Israel. And the fact that he's gone to the temple and he brings back a copy of the book of Isaiah indicates that he's probably a spiritual seeker. And what's interesting about eunuchs in those times and parents... If your children are tuned in right now, I'm going to leave it to you to cover and explain what a eunuch is. Go, go take that opportunity and apply my first application. Be bold in having awkward conversations. 
And so the physical condition of the eunuch kept him from certain parts of the temple. It meant that he was marginalized from the presence of God. He was stiff-armed by the Jewish religious leaders of how far he could get into the temple, how far he could get into the presence of God. But Philip took this spirit-led opportunity to proclaim the gospel to this eunuch by teaching the Ethiopian eunuch that the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that it was Jesus who was the one that was led like a sheep to a slaughter at the cross. It was Jesus who is the Lamb of God who became a sacrifice for our sins, to pay the penalty of our sins so we can freely, without guilt, without shame, freely come into the presence of God. And so the eunuch believes in this wonderful good news of Jesus Christ. And we read that he walks away rejoicing of God, of course, because by faith he has come into the freedom of coming into the very presence of God. Even with his current physical condition, in Jesus Christ, by faith, he can be accepted and loved by God. And this is probably your story. Some of you were perhaps marginalized in some way. You maybe felt like you've been kept out. You may feel like you've been stiff-armed by other people. Or for some of you, maybe you just had some odd beliefs. Maybe you took something about Christianity, but you kept throwing on other beliefs on top of that, trying out other things, anything that you think would bring you peace with God or peace with yourself, a sense of elevating your guilt and shame or trying to fill the emptiness in your life to somehow deal with the frustrations and failure you know is inside of you. But then you heard the gospel preached. You heard about the freedom and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And your life is now one that, after putting faith in Jesus, is one that's defined by rejoicing in God because you know that God loves you and accepts you. I'm sure there are plenty of these stories within our church community. So why don't we have all those real testimonies in our church community? Why don't those testimonies spur us on to have the compassion and the excitement to share the gospel to those who are marginalized in our city? Because the gospel is powerful enough to save all people. Lastly, the courage in discipleship. Evangelism is just the first step of discipleship. Discipleship is this long road of transforming to be more and more like Jesus Christ from now and into eternity. And so when someone comes to faith in Jesus, when they receive the Holy Spirit, it's not automatically poof, they become perfect, uh, all their sin goes away, and we don't have to deal with it. No, we bring all of that into church community. We bring our past we bring our sin, we bring our idols, we bring all of that, we bring it all together and we together deal with each other's mess and together we progressively work out and be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit to be more and more like Jesus Christ. And a big part of how the Holy Spirit empowers us to progressively help each other work out each other's mess and sin is by giving us the courage 
to correct and disciple. That is what we see going back to the story of Simon the sorcerer. Early in the passage, we read that Simon believed in Jesus. He gets baptized. But later in the passage, the way he responds makes us question whether his faith was genuine or not. And so this story gives us an honest depiction of the mess that happens with discipleship. Because when Peter and John, the apostle, comes down to lay hands for the Holy Spirit to fall on the new Christian, Simon is like, man, I want some of that. Uh, I want to buy the Holy Spirit with money because I really want that power. And so this is what he says in verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying of the apostles' hand, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. How does Peter respond? Verse 20. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. This is the translation of what Peter said. He says, You and your money can go to hell. That's the translation. Peter is bringing it strong because of the area that Simon made, thinking that he can buy God's gift with money. Now, we also have to remember what happens when Peter condemns people. Think about the story so far. What happened when Peter previously condemned others? They dropped dead. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira? And so Simon here, the sorcerer, probably got word of what happens when you get condemned by Peter. And so Simon responds in repentance. He says, may that not happen to me. And the point is that Peter speaks into Simon with force to lead him to repentance. And here's the situation that we find ourselves in. When we are discipling people, it's difficult, it's messy, we're dealing with sin, we're dealing with idols, we're dealing with people's little kingdoms that they don't want to give up. And at times we need to be empowered by the Spirit to courageously speak truth and sometimes with force to lead people to repentance and growth. It's much easier to be passive and say, oh, look, you know what? I won't say anything. I think they'll work it out on their own. But no, but what this text is saying, we need to be serious about sin because we want to be serious about discipleship. We want to be serious about transformation and growth in our lives. And this doesn't mean that we get up in each other's faces and be all intense and be like, what's your sin? What's your sin? No, what it does mean is that we need to be active, not passive. Because the gospel is not only powerful enough to save, the gospel is powerful enough to change, to change all of our sin, to change all of our mess. And that means we don't need to fear people's sin. We don't need to fear people's mess. Instead, we can courageously enter into that mess and courageously speak into it with the belief that the gospel truth is powerful enough to change. Because the gospel is power enough to save, we do not need to fear sin. We do not need to fear the mess. Instead, we can enter into each other's life with compassion and courage. 
because Jesus is power enough to save. Jesus is power enough to change. Jesus is at work in our lives by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. So Chapel Hill, as we take the gospel into our city in this season, let's have a culture of compassion and hope to help and lead those unloved, those who are marginalized, to find the love and embrace of Jesus Christ. But let's also have a culture of courage so that we can help and lead each other to be free from sin by the redemption and liberation of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus can save people and Jesus can change people, all people. No one is beyond his saving and changing grace. Together, let's do the dance of compassion and courage by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And friends, for those of you who have joined us today and you don't profess faith in Christ, do you know that this morning, this gospel message of salvation and transformation is for you? It's for you. You can have a personal relationship with God who can be your father. This morning through Jesus Christ, you can let get go of your guilt and shame that you've been burdened with. You can let go of all the spiritual practices and self-help practices that doesn't seem to stick. You can let go of trying to appease your own conscience, trying to appease God, trying to find acceptance with other people. You can be set free from sin, but you can be set free from trying to fix yourself. The good news is that you don't need to try to fix yourself. The good news is that you can know God and God can walk alongside of you to powerfully change you in powerful ways that you can never change on your own. This good news is for you this morning if you put your trust in Jesus Christ because salvation is also for you. Friends, we love you. Jesus loves you. The Father accepts you and the Holy Spirit can change you. Will you put your faith in Jesus Christ, who is powerful enough to save you and change you? Let's pray. We thank you, God, that Jesus saves all people. May we have compassion to share your gospel to all people. May we have the courage to enter into sin and mess and to speak your gospel at all times. We pray that you will use our compassion and courage to see many, many people saved and changed for you. Our Savior, our King, our Redeemer, our Lord, in the name who saves, we pray. Amen.